If you will take out your Bibles. This Sunday and next Sunday as we prepare for this mission endeavor together, I want to, uh, to look uh, in the book of Acts. So this morning, uh, we won't be in Deuteronomy, we'll be in Acts chapter 13. Sir William Ramsey had several prestigious professorships. He was the first professor of classical archaeology at Oxford. He was the Lincoln and Merton professorship of classical archaeology and art at Oxford. He was the Regis professor, professor of humanity at the University of Aberdeen. And he received a gold medal from Pope Leo Twelfth and was knighted in 1906. A really smart, smart guy. Well, Sir Ramsey set this goal for himself. And his goal was that he was going to prove that the Bible was full of inaccuracies and discrepancies, and therefore the Word of God could not be trusted. And so the way he chose to accomplish this goal was he determined that he would retrace the missions trips of the Apostle Paul, so that he could demonstrate that they could not have possibly happened in the way Paul described them, or Luke described them in Acts. And so he set off on this mission. And Ramsey's first stop, like that of the Apostle Paul, on the first ever mission trip to ever take place, was the island of Cyprus. And when he got to Cyprus, he began his archaeological digs and his research, and he discovered some disturbing evidence he found inscriptions bearing the name of Sergius Paulus, governor of Cyprus. Well, Paul had written about a man named Sergius Paulus, governor of Cyprus. And as if it weren't bad enough that he discovered this man that Paul wrote about was real, he also found evidence that this man, Sergius Paulus, became a Christian and that his family, his entire family, became very prominent in the church that Paul planted there on his first missionary journey. Well, this made such a dramatic impact on the life of Sir William Ramsey, the man who started his trip trying to disprove Scripture. He admitted that God's Word was true, and he became a believer in Christ. And so the work of God continues to amaze and to inspire me to see over and over again how God does work all things together for good, how the Spirit of God can, can move this influential scholar William Ramsey, bent on disproving his existence and used that very goal in this man's life to bring him to faith in Christ. And just when you thought the fruit of a mission trip that took place 18 centuries in the past had surely dried up and withered away in a no longer important place in the world, God was still bringing forth fruit from that vine. How can you and I, how can we possibly know what God is working together for good in our lives and for his glory? How can you and I gauge the impact that our lives and our activity and mission as a church will have on our community here in Charleston and around the world? How will God use the missions that we involve ourselves in today to impact the lives of people generations and generations from now. Who knows? But that's why we should be inspired. That's why we should be amazed to move out and find out. The Lord has some surprises for us as a church. I'm confident of that. I think the Lord has some surprises for this Uganda team in the next week as we prepare to go. 
and while we're on the ground in Uganda. I think the Lord has surprises for all of us here this morning who are seeking to be led by the Spirit of God and who want our lives to count for something meaningful, something eternal. So if you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 13, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together from the Word of God. The first four verses. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Let's pray together. Lord, again, as always, we ask your blessing on the reading and hearing of your word, your truth. Father, we pray that 2,000 years later, you would still bring forth fruit from your word in our lives. Bless us uh, with the same truth, the ancient truth that you blessed your early church with. Father, bring the transformation that needs to come to this place, Uh, the commitment, uh, the dedication, the resolve that you long to see in us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. You know, if you and I are seeking to be led by the Spirit of God and seeking that He would make our lives meaningful uh, for eternity, this passage can offer us some steps toward achieving that end, being led by the Spirit of God. And I just want to look at at two of those steps this morning. And the first one is uh, the the step that you and I can take toward, toward seeking the Spirit of God. Look again in verses 1 and 2. It talks about the church gathered there and it. And it names these men, and it says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It may be easy for us to, to overlook this inspirational truth that's in this verse. The truth that should give you and me this morning great confidence and great comfort as we live our life in Christ day to day. And the truth is this, that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in his church. Look what it says here in this verse. It says the Holy Spirit spoke to the church. What was that speaking like? Do we dare interpret this literally? Did he speak audibly? Why wouldn't we? I think the fact that many of us as proper Presbyterians may not want to interpret this literally or hope that we should not interpret it literally or at least we're not comfortable interpreting it literally, that may highlight the fact that we are just a little bit nervous about the unpredictability of the work of the Spirit of God. Here's what we hope. We hope that by saying the Holy Spirit spoke, but what he really meant, well, they just had an inward impression. The Spirit just impressed upon their hearts what they should do. And maybe that is what happened. But maybe the Holy Spirit spoke to them in an audible voice. Jesus told Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in John chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, 
That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so the unpredictability of the who and the unpredictability of the where and the unpredictability of the what and the why and the how, all of those go together. We are talking about the work of the Spirit of God. And that fact does not in any way suggest that the Spirit is out of control. He is not. It merely confirms the fact that we do not control him, but he controls us. Right? We don't control the Spirit of God, though we would like to. He controls us. Romans 8, 9 reminds us, You, however, are controlled by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And that's good news for us because Romans 9 also says that the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And so there's peace for us, living our lives not in control, but being controlled by the Spirit of God. You can't predict the time. You can't predict the place. You can't predict the manner of the work of the Spirit. And that truth has great implications for you and for me, all of us this morning. It means that we must look for the work of the Spirit. It means that we must expect the work of the Spirit. It means that we must obey when the Spirit reveals to us what it is He wants us to do. When we review the book of Acts, just up until this point, chapter 13, we see how the Spirit of God works, how the Spirit surprises. And He may do the same for us in Acts 2. When the church was gathered together on the day of Pentecost, it wasn't because they woke up that morning and said, let's hurry up and meet together. This is the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out upon us. They didn't know that. They hadn't predicted that. They didn't know the Spirit was going to work in this way at that time. They had gathered to me because that's what they had been doing ever since Jesus returned to his Father. Meeting together to pray and the Holy Spirit came upon them. Peter hadn't spent days preparing and studying for a sermon because he knew that he was going to be preaching to thousands of people. Probably if Peter had known he was going to be preaching to thousands of people, he would have woken up that morning and said, sorry, Lord, I have a sore throat, I can't do it. That's what I would do. He didn't predict the work of the Spirit. Peter wasn't looking for a new ministry to involve himself in When the Lord called him in Acts 10 to this new ministry to the Gentiles, no. Peter was hungry, lunch wasn't ready, so he went up on the rooftop to pray. And that's where the Lord gave him this vision and sent him for the first time to the Gentiles. Philip wasn't seeking a different ministry from the Lord. In Acts chapter 8, when the Spirit of God led him to the desert, where he would encounter that eunuch from the country of Ethiopia. In fact, Philip was involved in a very exciting ministry in Samaria. Lots and lots of people were coming to faith in Christ when the Spirit of God told him to go to that desert road at high noon where he would meet and then lead to Christ, the Ethiopian eunuch. See, the kind of activity of the Spirit of God, it reminds you and me that we should be seeking in our lives the guidance of the Spirit of God. And it means that you and I need to make an exchange. We exchange the grip that we have on our own lives or the grip that other people have on our lives because they know what we ought to do. 
We exchange that grip for the grip that God has on our lives. And we've got to be prepared to do what he calls us to do, whatever that may be. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did. Look in verse 4. So the two of them, sent on their way by the Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. The Spirit sent them on their way. That's why they could go. That's why they must go. That's why they were able to make these difficult goodbyes. That's why they were able to face the unknown. Because the Spirit called them to go. And the Spirit sent them out. And that's what mission is. That's what mission is. It is the plan of God carried out by the power of God through the people of God who will obey that call. That's what mission is. It's the plan of God carried out by the the power of God through people of God who will obey His call. And so because God called them, because God sent them, because God empowered them, Paul and Barnabas were able to leave their friends. They were able to leave their ministry in Antioch in order to go places in the world, to be with people in the world who had never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. See, that's incarnational ministry. That is going out to people. And that is quite different than calling people to come to you, calling people to come to your church, calling people to come to your programs. Incarnational ministry is living life in and living life among others, telling them the good news about Jesus Christ. It's the kind of ministry that we should be doing, even though, let me just tell you, there's a debate in our denomination. People don't believe in incarnational ministry because you know what? Some people in our denomination believe that you all aren't qualified to do this. So your only job is to get people to come here and then let the experts take care of them. Not what we want to do. What did Jesus do? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's what we call the incarnation of Christ. When he came from heaven to earth to be with us, to pitch his tent among us. You know, we get sad when we think about people leaving to do long-term missions. How sad it is to leave their family. How sad it is to leave their churches. How sad it is to give up all that we have here in America and rough it on the mission field. And we wonder why they would want to do it. And yet here is Christ with God. And in a glory that we cannot imagine from all eternity past. But he chose to be among us. And what a vivid picture that is for you and for me. That there is a cost to incarnational ministry. Christ dwelled in the the lavish halls of heaven that we can't even describe. But he gave those up to come and live in a tent of human flesh. That's incarnational ministry. He obeyed the voice of his father to go from him and come to us, to live with us. Jesus summarized this mission, you know, after saving that nasty, that nasty, hated little tax collector named Zacchaeus. The guy that you don't want to be saved, the guy that you want to see, get what's coming to him in the end. 
But Jesus saved him, and he said to him, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so we could easily call missions a search uh, and rescue mission. A search and rescue mission. And so whatever else you may think about God this morning, and you've got a lot of thoughts about God, know this. He is a searching and saving God. That's who he is. He searches and he saves. And it isn't difficult for us to figure out why he does what he does not have to do and what no one could force him to do. He searches and he saves because he loves. Jesus loves. That's why he gave himself to incarnational ministry to save people like Zacchaeus. Nasty people like Zacchaeus and people like you and me right now. And then Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. You know, our trips to Uganda are expensive. Truly, they are very expensive. They cost a lot of money. And so I always have this internal conflict. Every time we take a large team of people on a mission trip anywhere, and the conflict is this, wow, that is really a lot of money. Should we really spend all that money? Is Really, is it worth it? Maybe we should just send all that money attached to a nice letter. But then I remember this. God sent a lot of written correspondence to us through his prophets. And God could have kept on sending written correspondence to us, writing us little notes. But God knew that wasn't enough. So what did he do? He came in flesh to be with us. And aren't you glad he did? See, that's the expense of incarnational ministry, but the rewards are great. And I think of our first trip to Uganda. And I think of going to those internally displaced person camps. Thousands of people living in them. Living in what would be a stretch to call even a hut. Just little shelters made with little pieces of paper, cardboard, tarp scraps, whatever they could find. Crowded, little food, not sanitary. They could have received money from faceless people. They could have been given some food. And they could have been told, well, this comes from some people in the West. And they could have eaten for a while. But when the people in those camps saw our team coming into the camp, their camp, the looks on their faces was this mixture of disbelief and at the same time this not-to-be-contained joy. They said, you came to us? Somebody out there in the world knew about us? Somebody out there knows about our suffering here? We are not hopelessly forgotten in this forsaken place? You mean there's hope for us? There's help for us? That's the moment that you know the cost is worth it. Because we were to those people a lifeline of hope and help. And I'm not sure that you can put a price tag on that kind of hope. 
and the doors that had opened to us to speak to them the the truth of the gospel and, and encouragement from the scriptures because we were leaving, but they were staying to continue their suffering. And in just a small way, that's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. And, and our response, your response and mine should always be the same. Our faces should be this mixture of disbelief and, and a not-to-be-contained joy when we think about Jesus. You came to us. You knew about us. You knew about our suffering. You mean we're not hopelessly forgotten here in this forsaken place? You mean there's help for us? There's hope for us? And Jesus didn't just ship or mail aid to us. He came to us himself to live where we live and to experience what we experience and then to do something about it. And then Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And so I'm thankful for the support that comes to us from you all, from this church, to go, to go on these trips, to go on this trip this year. But we can't all go. But all of us, all of us here are part of this process of sending some to bring flesh and blood words of hope and help. So remember that while we are gone on this trip, we're all in this together and we're all part of making this incarnational ministry happen. But we've got to remember as well that the call to incarnational ministry isn't just for Africa. It's for us all, wherever we are. The call is the same. Leave the comfort, leave the security of these walls and go live among people out there. More often than most of us do, the call is to extract ourselves from one another and from the safety of our Christian relationships and seek relationships, even if it's together as a group with those uh, who are not inside these walls right now, for those who need to hear the good news of the gospel of Christ. The Spirit of God may call you or me or both of us, all of us, to new ventures and to uncertain exploits for the sake of being incarnational. Are you listening? Do you want to hear what the Spirit might be saying to you, to us? Do you want to even ask Him where He may be leading Maybe you don't want to know those things, but maybe you do. And for those of us who do, who really want to know those things, I think there's another step that you and I can take in seeking the Spirit and determining where He wants us to be and and where He wants us to serve. We can put ourselves in a place to better receive that. And that place is worshiping with the family of God. And so that's what I want to look at secondly this morning. The call for you and for me to be very serious about worship. Look in verse 2. It says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said what he said to them. See, the the Spirit moved while the church was worshiping together. In the Greek, that word worshiping uh, that we translate worshiping is liturgeo, where we get the word liturgy. That's why churches talk about having a liturgy. And that word just literally means serving. And the word has a very specific direction. It's, it's outward. In the culture of Paul's day, distinguished citizens were expected to serve in this way, to use their power, to use their position to serve the other citizens. 
And so they were expected, at their own expense and without any reimbursement, to build public buildings and to produce dramas and to organize games for the people. And so this word describes someone who chooses to serve, not to get, but to give, and to give sacrificially. And now we see that word here in verse 2. And we have an indication of how the early church viewed worship. And for the early church, worship as a church, for them, was upward toward God. That was the focus of their worship. Worship to them was about denying themselves. And so we read here that they went without food. They fasted. Week after week, the Lord keeps showing us the same thing. What do you think he's trying to get across? Moses, on the mountain two weeks ago, what was he doing? Fasting and praying. What was the direction of Moses' life? Outward and upward. Last week, Jesus, in the desert, being tempted of Satan. Fasting, praying, 40 days, 40 nights. What was the direction of his life? Outward and upward. Here in Acts chapter 13, we get a glimpse of a worshiping church. And what's the direction? Outward and upward. How can we not admit that this is what God wants from his people? An outward focus, an upward focus. The same word that Ergeos used to describe what the priests did in the temple before the Lord. They served him. What's Peter say in his letter? He describes believers like this. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light, outward and upward. We've seen God use the exact same words in Deuteronomy to describe his people there. This is the beauty of scripture, by the way. The continuity of all its parts. When we teach from Deuteronomy, we get to look at Jesus in the New Testament. When we look at Jesus in the New Testament, we get to look back to Deuteronomy as well. All the parts fit together. All the themes match because there is one divine author. And so we see over and over again, perhaps this is what he wants from you and from me this morning. An outward and an upward life. Paul urged the Christians in Rome... I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And there's that same word again. And so while this church was gathered, Barnabas and Paul and the others listed here, they were not primarily ministering to each other. They weren't. They weren't primarily thinking about those among them who may be lost. No, they are ministering to the Lord, giving themselves to him. The Lord was the center of their attention and their focus, not themselves and not others. And that's what worship is all about. So once again, as we saw last week, worship is not a performance put on by the few for the benefit of the many. The focus of worship isn't you or me or what we get out of this time together. It is service given to God, focused on God, a time when you and I present ourselves to Him. That's what worship is. Worship is about what you are serving and not about what you are being served. And that's what the church in Antioch was doing giving themselves to the Lord in worship. And while they were in this very act, 
worshiping the Lord, serving him, fasting before the Lord, the Spirit of God spoke. And look what he did in that moment. He redirected the lives of these two men, Barnabas and Paul, and that in turn changed the direction of the church, and that in turn changed the history of the world. Right here in this very moment, sending these men out on the first ever mission trip and all the others after that. That, that puts a new perspective on worship, doesn't it? That's, that, that's when it happened. And so how could we ever think of worship as being irrelevant or boring when the Holy Spirit of God is at work during worship? What a wonderful time for God to, to direct his people and his church. When we are gathered together to seek his face. What a wonderful time for the Lord to reorient the direction of our lives away from ourselves and what we want and what we think we need toward him. A wonderful time to to share in David's desires. He writes in the Psalms to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple, to sacrifice with shouts of joy and to sing and make music to the Lord. When our hearts are turned in this direction, then we have to put ourselves, we put ourselves in a better position to hear from the Spirit of God. Think of the way, think of the value, think of the value that you would place on worship. Think of the value that you would place on those community groups that, that, that meet throughout the course of the week if you believed something like this might happen. If you thought something like this would happen during worship or community group, I bet you wouldn't want to miss it. I bet you would stop seeing Sunday morning worship and community group worshiping together as something that you had to do as an obligation. And maybe it would be something that you were excited to do, eager to do, that people couldn't keep you from doing because of its God-centered, Christ-centered focus. Something that would fill us with anticipation. How might the Spirit of God direct us while we are together? And so the challenge, there is a challenge for us here this morning. There's a challenge to people who don't want to participate regularly in Sunday morning. There's a challenge to people who believe that they have no need for a community group. They can make it just fine on their own. Look at what the Lord did here while the church was together worshiping. See, I'm just certain that the Lord has surprises for all of us of all kinds. And some of you here, I don't know you all, you might be like Sir William Ramsey. This guy sought to destroy faith and prove the word of God untrue, but instead God used him for something completely different. And this is what he wrote with his own pen. I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet, but I found it in Acts. You may press the words of Luke written in Acts. In a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. See, God had a surprise for Sir William Ramsey. Others of you are here this morning, and you are eager to hear from the Lord. You really want it, and you want direction from him. And for you, there may be surprises as well. As surely as Barnabas and Paul were called from their thriving ministry to a new work, 
to trade in what they might have thought was really good for what God thought was even better. Only God knows what we will do. Only God knows who we will become if we as a church are made up of people who are eager to discover the surprises, who are watching and listening for them, people who are worshiping together with an upward focus in hopes of finding them out. May the Lord grant the desires of our hearts as we seek him. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word as always. Thank you for this testimony of one who sought to disprove it and who had the credentials and the expertise to do that had he been able to. But his testimony is once again about the truth of your word. So we know that there's truth in what we've read here this morning, Lord, this account that truly happened in time and space. Truly, there was a group of people worshiping together in Antioch. And truly, your spirit came to them and spoke to them while they worshiped. And truly, you sent these men out. You redirected their lives. And through them, you redirected the church and the course of human history as the gospel from that place emanated throughout the entire known world. So, Father, we pray now that you, by the power of your Spirit, Holy Spirit of God, would work in us and through us. Convince us that there's more than our eyes can see and our minds can conceive. Remind those of us who like to hold on tightly, who like to control things, that far better for us to relinquish that control to you and to lay ourselves open before you to do what you want us to do, to go where you call us to go, to be who you want us to be, to be courageous enough to make the changes we need to make in our lives to be the people that you want us to be so that we can go where you want us to go and do what you want us to do. Lord, we pray that we would have it as a goal of our hearts that we will be incarnational, that we'll love worshiping you together in this place or wherever you put us, but that we'd also love to be incarnational, to go out and to live among, to to pitch our tents among people who don't know you and to speak to them the words of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope and the help and the salvation that's found in them. Father, do make us bold enough to cross every border, every boundary, whether it's a boundary here in Charleston that we've set for ourselves or whether it's a national or international boundary. May we cross those, Lord, with your power and your strength. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.